calling our sermon tonight. First things first, we're seeing a number of priorities uh, in the actions of the people of God who came back to Jerusalem. A lot that we can learn uh, from that. As you know, uh, Coatbridge and a lot of the towns around us have a, a maze of disused mine workings underneath them. And one of the implications of that, of course, is that when you're going to build a home or a building of any kind, you need to be very careful where you're building. You need to be sure that there isn't uh, subsidence so that the foundations are going to shift. You need to have firm foundations. And first sign, of course, that uh, there's a problem is when you have walls with cracks appearing in the side of them. Uh, the second symptom that you may have uh, when the whole thing comes falling down. Well, one of the, the chief lessons that we have in uh, the book of Ezra is that if you are going to uh, be building for God, it is vital to be building on the right foundations, building in the right way, building uh, on the proper foundations. The Ezra project, uh, uh, this project of building again a worship community, it's obviously it's a community event that came back as one people, uh, they had been exiled in Babylon, they've been released, they come back to Israel as a people. And so there are obvious uh, parallels, aren't there, with the, the revitalizing, the, the rebuilding of the church in our day. We have been ravaged in the church by decades of secularism, uh, which have uh, undermined uh, the, the work of the gospel and compromise with our false teaching and we need to see the church of God restored, rebuilt in our day. But there's also of course an application not just to the church but to each one of us as individuals because, and we say this often in our church, in one way or another we are all broken people, aren't we? There is none of us, there's nobody here in church tonight uh, on this side of the table or on that, who is whole, who is all together in the real sense of that uh, expression. We are broken people and we need a saviour who is able to give us wholeness. And when we receive that salvation, the Holy Spirit continues to renew in us the image of God that has been defaced, broken by sin. So how do we move on in life? How are we restored? How are we made increasingly whole? We have a pause. <laughs> well, the, there are plenty of suggestions around us. Uh, if we don't take our lead from the Bible uh, and from the Word of God, then uh, you just need to go down into your local bookstore and you will find shelf upon shelf, row upon row of self-help uh, books. Books that will tell you how to organize your life, how to sort your life, how to be more successful, how to become more relational, how to have a uh, better marriage, be a better parent, how to be uh, wealthy, how to be successful in business. 
The world is full of its suggestions. And the one thing that they all have in common is that in one way or another, they are saying to us that the answer uh, is within us, that we have within us the solution to our own problems. If only we could unearth the deep resources that are within us, then we could restore our situation. We could find wholeness. We could move on. Now, the Christian message is very different. And the Christian verdict on where we are as broken people and what we need is very different. Because it tells us that we do not have the resources within us to be restored. And that we, if we are to be made whole people, then the power must come from outside us. We must look to the Lord to save us. We will never save ourselves by pulling ourselves up by our, our bootlaces. And so we have this very realistic appraisal of the human condition in the Bible. Jesus uh, has his parable, uh, Jesus' best known parable, the parable of the lost son. Where is the lost? We are the lost son in, in our brokenness. Where are we? We're in the far country. We're away from home. We haven't got a penny in our pocket. We are bankrupt people. And we need help. The Old Testament equivalent is what we've been studying. We're in exile. We're away from God. And we need a mighty God to move hearts to bring us to himself. Okay, we're back to the land. There we are. There's all the self-help books. <laughs> and now... Yeah. We need uh, to find the resources from outside of ourselves. We need uh, to look outside ourselves to the Lord. Israel, as we've been seeing, have returned to Jerusalem after being in exile for 70 years. This has been God's punishment for their desertion of the true and living God. They have worshipped idols rather than God. And God, to discipline them and to purge them of this idolatry, sends them into exile. He uses means. He uses Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, to do it. But they're sent into exile. Jeremiah the prophet says it'll be 70 years and then they'll return. And again, according to God's word, that's what happens. God uses means again. And this time it is Cyrus the Persian who comes uh, to rule over Babylon and he has a, a new policy and he sends the conquered peoples back to where they came from and allows them to worship their own gods. And as God's people make the return to Jerusalem, we saw in this formidable list of names last time that there was a high proportion of people who were priests in that group of returnees. In other words, we said, this was a people for whom worship was at the center of their thinking. They were passionate about worshiping God. We also noticed that a lot of the names were foreign names, that these were people who had been conquered in battle or had been put to work in the temple, uh, uh, Canaanites who were still in the land, and over time they had come to believe in Israel's God, and now they're numbered 
in his people. We thought, what a great encouragement for us, because that's where we are too. We were outsiders, but we've been brought into the company of God's people. We're going to see how this, uh, this set of priorities, this, uh, this desire to establish again a worshipping community in Jerusalem on Mount Zion works itself out as they have arrived now in Jerusalem. The journey is over. They're back now in Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to see, first of all, how uh, they made worship the foundation for their new life at home. We're going to see how... Uh, Restoration was God's gift to them. And we're going to see how uh, faith made its beginnings. Worship then, uh, the foundation for a new life. We're seeing in this chapter especially the, the essentials for life. There's so many things, aren't there, which are not essential and there are things which are are urgent and there are things which are absolutely vital and it's so often the case that we have to distinguish between these things. Our catechism, the catechism of our church uh, asks in its famous first question, what is man's chief end? Or in simple words, what's our ultimate purpose in life? And the answer it gives is Our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You could think about that answer for hours, could you? It's so rich. This is what life is for. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him. Some would put it, we will enjoy God. We'll find our highest enjoyment in life in so far as we're glorifying God. And so far as we're worshipping God. You see, sin, our, our brokenness that we were talking about earlier, it causes us to be turned in on ourselves. We become preoccupied with self. These rows of books that you see in the bookstores, they're all about self. They're all written by people who want to turn us in on ourselves in different ways. And God says to us, you need to be turned out of yourself to God. Because you were created uh, to live a life that is uh, Godward in its direction. Sin has turned you in on yourself. Grace will turn you out of yourself and to God. Your purpose in life is to be related to God. And to become in the widest fullest, most wonderful sense, a worshipper. You were created for worship. Created for worship. And that is why, friends, when the people went back to Jerusalem, the first thing that they did was to work in the temple. They did not go and make homes for themselves. They did not first clear the fields of stones so that they could Uh, raise crops and graze animals. All of these things were necessities, but they recognized properly that the vital thing was that they should re-establish the place where God is worshipped. And so they set to in the rebuilding 
of the temple. You and I are designed, we are hardwired, we were made by our Creator for this great purpose to worship Him. What's worship? If you read some of the, uh, the books in Christian bookstores, <laughs> uh, you get all kinds of ideas that strongly debated what worship is. Uh, there are some people uh, who speak of worship exclusively in terms of what happens in a church building. And even when they're speaking about worship, they're really talking about singing. Uh, they're talking about praise. And so you get folks uh, sometimes talking in terms of uh, I like that church over there because the teaching's good. But, you know, I prefer to go to church B because the worship is better there. So you have this very strange distinction. And on the other hand, and as a kind of reaction against that, increasingly you have people uh, who base their thinking on Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says that we have to offer our, our lives as living sacrifices. They will say, well, worship is what I do throughout the week in whatever activity I'm doing. And they tend to play down what happens when we come together on Sundays. And they say, well, that's just for encouragement. That's for teaching. But worship is what we do at other times. Well, there is a mixture of truth and error in both of these. And the, the, real, uh, the real definite of worship uh, is between those two extremes. And we find a good uh, example of what worship is in this particular chapter. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the, the people came together. They came, we're told, as one man uh, to begin restoring worship. They did gather together. That's one of the subtle themes that we see in Ezra, that the people were at one. It's a whole Israel picture of this worshipping community. That's got importance for us too, because it is important that we gather together. There's something, there's something precious, is there not, about coming together tonight to praise God. It's far better than being on your own in your bedroom, uh, reading your Bible and praying, although we need to do that as well. But there's something special about coming together on the Lord's Day to worship Him in this place. And if, to go back to that that uh, argument that we made, I, I refer to, if we were to say, well, it's not really important to come on a Sunday to worship because I'm worshipping all the week in any case. It would be a little like uh, a husband saying to his wife that he didn't have to uh, remember her birthday or their anniversary because he loved her all uh, through his days anyway. He didn't love her any more on the birthday and anniversary than he did in other days. There'd be something a bit amiss about that. It wouldn't go down very well, I can assure you. One day we will be in heaven. Every day will be the Lord's day. But right now, God has given us this special privilege of gathering together. Gathered worship is important. That's why when we neglect it, we need to hear again the words of the writer to the Hebrews who says, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are accustomed to do. They came together as one person. Notice also that even before they laid the foundations of the temple, they had built something else. Did you notice that? They built the altar first. 
They built the altar first. That has to be really significant. Because the altar was the place where they made sacrifices. The altar's connected with uh, the, the fact that the, the blood from animals was, was uh, placed on the altar. And the slain animal, the life that was taken, acted in place of the one who was offering sacrifice. Sacrifice is God's way of dealing with sin. And it has been from the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked and became ashamed of their nakedness, remember God clothes them with skins. Many see in that act uh, a pointing towards the necessity of sacrifice. A life was taken to cover their nakedness. And then we see that Abel offers, a God, uh, offers a, an offering to God which is acceptable because a life was taken in his animal sacrifice. And when Abraham goes into the land, he gets his priorities right. He lives in canvas, in skin tents, but he builds solid altars across the land. The seriousness of of sin is so great that it demands a life. The grace of God is so great that he will accept a substitute. And every sacrifice from the beginning on is a shadow looking to the reality, the effective sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Who, when he went to the cross, was in my place, in the place of every one of his people, bearing the proper penalty of their sins. He was a substitute. And when we become Christians, we become people of the cross. We love to hear about the cross of Jesus. We come to appreciate the wonder of the blood of Jesus shed for sinners. The cross is central in our thinking. And it has to be central in all that we do as worshippers. came across a story. It's probably an apocryphal story. But it's interesting because it relates to, to Cyrus, the, the Persian emperor who, humanly speaking, was the agent for for the exile. And the the story is told of a prince uh, who was taken before uh, Cyrus the prince and his family had been captured in war. And Cyrus, the great Persian emperor, asks this prince uh, why uh, he should release him. He says to the prisoner, what will you give me if I release you? The prince replies, I will give you half my wealth And if I release your children, Cyrus asks, everything I possess. And if I release your wife, your majesty says, I will give myself. And Cyrus, so the story goes, is so impressed uh, by his devotion that he frees them all. And as they're walking away, uh, the prince said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? And with a look of love, 
the wife turns to her husband and says, I did not notice. I could not. I, I could only have my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. In the church of Christ, our eyes are focused upon Jesus, the one who not only was willing to give himself for us, but who did give himself for us. His cross is central in the life of the church. The building of this altar seems to have been spurred on by the fear that the people had for of the surrounding nations. Now, uh, we, we're using the, the New International Version translation. Of course, there are other translations. Uh, and some of the others uh, bring a, a slightly different uh, understanding of the verse which speaks of them building the altar in the midst of the, the people around them. For it was an account of dread upon them because of the people of the lands uh, is oh yes, verse 3 uh, verse 3 in our enemy reads despite their fear of the peoples around them they built the altar on its foundations the enemy has despite their fear uh, more literally it's on account of their fear and we wonder is that a good thing? Or is that is it a bad thing? Is it a, a rather unworthy motive uh, to be building an altar because you're scared of the people around you? I don't think it's an unworthy motive to come to God because we are afraid. To come to Jesus because we fear that we cannot cope with life and we need one who will take us through life to heaven. I don't think it's an unworthy motive to come to Jesus for life because we're afraid of what will happen to us after death because we're afraid of hell. Remember the, the line that we have in that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And so... I think we can appreciate what was going on here. These people afraid of the folks around them, the hostility of the surrounding peoples. They made this altar building an urgent priority. They, were, they hastened on to complete the altar and to make sacrifice to God. They were expressing in a way their absolute dependence upon the living God. And we're told that they also, one of the first feasts that they celebrated was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And in another way, that was also expressing their frailty and their dependence upon God because this feast was commemorating the time when they came out of Egypt and they wandered in the desert. And in the desert, they had lived in tents or tabernacles. And so when they went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival... Uh, it was a time when they, they built booths, little make-to-lean-to shelters, 
flimsy affairs made with branches and leaves and perhaps skins. Now, if you'd been a child going up with your family to Jerusalem, it would have been absolutely brilliant to have been involved in hut making along with the entire population. Some of us spent a lot of our youth building huts and enjoying building them and taking them down again. It would have been just heavenly to be a child at the Feast of Tabernacles where everyone was building huts. But the thing is that these were flimsy constructions. It was a reminder that their life hung, as it were, by a thread. They were a dependent people that they looked up to the Lord to defend them. That, friends, is a, a powerful lesson. A powerful lesson. It's a powerful lesson for all of us that we need to live dependently on God. But it's especially important for those of us who are maybe getting a little bit long on the truth in the Christian life. We've been Christians for some years now. Let's never forget how dependent we are on God's grace. I remember when I was a new Christian, when I was a a very young uh, believer, I was always terrified I was going to mess up. And I remember in these early early days of trying to to get times to be on my own, even in the busyness of school, to try to pray to God because I was so afraid of messing up. And the danger is that when when we grow and Mature with that growth and maturity sometimes comes a complacency. And we look back and we say, how much better were the days when I feared to fall and ran to God. The people were learning to live dependently. They had the altar at the center. They were living dependent upon God. Second thing we notice more briefly is that This is a picture of the restoration that God provides for us as churches and as individuals. In the rebuilding of the the temple, at least the, the, the building of the altar, the laying of the foundations, we've got echoes, echoes from earlier parts of Israel's history. There's the obvious echo of the building of the temple by Solomon because when Solomon built the temple uh, he got timber sent from uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon some of the famous cedars of Lebanon were felled and floated down the river to help with the building of the temple and once again the people of Sidon and Tyre are involved in the building and the provision of material for the temple And then there's also an echo in the words that are sung when the foundations are laid. They sang, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his goodness endures forever. Now those are the words which were sung when Solomon's temple was dedicated. But there's another echo. Because Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a time when There would be a restoration and people would be singing these very words. He says, thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say it's a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bride 
bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. We can pick up on these echoes. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm certain of it, that the people there would realise too what was going on. God is restoring, as he's promised, the fortunes of his people. We were exiled because of sin. We were under the yoke of bondage. And God has brought us back. And this temple that was destroyed because of our sin is in process of being rebuilt. God is the God who restores lives. It's not, that's a wonderful, wonderful message that we have to, to bring to a deeply cynical world who don't believe that people who are broken can be remade. But by the grace of God, it is in his gift to restore lives. However we have messed up our lives, whether we've messed up our lives through substance abuse or through promiscuity or failed relationships, through violence and abusiveness, however it is we have messed up, God in his might and grace and power is able to come and to restore. And even to bring what we are now as a result of the past and make it into something utterly beautiful, utterly gracious. There's a nice wee story told about uh, the famous artist Landseer, it's told by the writer uh, Stuart Holden, uh, who had a summer home in the north of Scotland, and he says that his summer home was beside uh, a large mansion. And uh, in this mansion, there was a particular room which is filled with sketches by famous artists became something of a custom for visitors to, to put sketches on this wall. And the custom came about in this way. This room had been newly decorated, and uh, there was paint on the, the, the plaster, and there was an accident with uh, a soda siphon, so that there was a, a mark on the wall which the lady of, of the manor couldn't uh, get rid of and she made it known to our guests that she was deeply upset about this mark on the wall, this ugly stain and at the time uh, Landseer was a guest in the house and one day when the family went out into the moors he stayed behind and with some masterful strokes with a piece of charcoal that ugly spot on the wall became the outline of a beautiful waterfall bordered by trees and wildlife. He turned that disfigured wall into one of his most successful depictions of a highland scene. And in his restoring grace, God comes to individuals and renews us 
and turns even what was ugly in our lives into something new and beautiful. And then finally, we see in this chapter the faith that makes a beginning. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, uh, we read that the leaders uh, began the work. They began the work appointing Levites and so on to supervise the building. But in the ESV, I think uh, the ESV's rendering uh, is more striking. It says that all who returned from the captivity made a beginning. There was a beginning that was made. Every journey starts with the first step. In every, uh, every instance, we need to make a beginning. And sometimes we make our beginning in very humble uh, and ordinary circumstances. Uh, as individuals, we may begin on the Christian life and we feel that our knowledge of the Bible is pathetic. You know, I know nothing. How could I begin? We're called to make a beginning by faith. Sometimes uh, in the church, we look for God to come and to bless us. And we're intimidated by the smallness of things. When the people did make a beginning, when the foundations of the temple were laid, uh, there are some who recognize that this was, this was a great moment It was a new start. It was the journey's start. And they shouted for joy. But there was also an older group. A group who were old enough to remember how grand the temple had been. And how small by comparison the foundations of this new temple were. And they began to weep. The, the chapter is almost an anticlimax in the way it ends, isn't it? Because you've got joy and weeping mingled together. Such a cacophony that they could hear it for miles around. The people who wept. Now we learn from the prophets who spoke to the situation, from men like Haggai, that God was not pleased. That the people were reacting in this negative way. Who despises the day of small things? God would say, through Haggai. You know, nostalgia, nostalgia for the past is a funny thing, isn't it? I remember uh, when uh, we were boys in the summertime in Sky. one of the things that we used to love to do was to, to go through a stone-built culvert that went under the, the road and then to go up a bray. Uh, we were playing hide-and-seek and water fights and all kinds of things. And then uh, near the top of this particular bray, uh, there was, a, it was an outcrop of rock, and we called it the Rocky Mountains. And it seemed such a great feat to have got so far and to, to scramble over this uh, amazing landmark, the Rocky Mountains. We were wee boys. And then to go back later on and to be utterly disappointed. It was just a tablecloth size piece of, of, of rock. A ledge, a flat ledge of rock, nothing more. How could one ever think that these uh, were the Rocky Mountains, this big land, uh, this, this, this big landmark? And nostalgia can make us look back 
with longing at times when things in the church perhaps were much bigger, when things were livelier, fuller, more fruitful, or whatever. And God uh, always asks us to live in the reality of the present. Who despises the day of small things? Even when the cause of Jesus is at a low end, we are called to worship the Lord passionately, to witness for Jesus joyfully and sincerely, and to love one another deeply from the heart. I love the way that that Dale Ralph Davis uh, puts things. Uh, He says, the question is not, is it jazzy here? The question is, is Jesus here? That really is the question, isn't it? We believe that Jesus is here. Because of that, we may have great hope. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for the fact that the Spirit uh, saw fit to record uh, this period in the life, the history of your people when they returned from the long years of exile. And the first thing that they did was to set about the building of the altar and then the temple. Lord, we thank you that you have created us for such a high purpose that that we will only find our rest when we find our rest in you. That we will only find our, our true purpose and meaning in life when we have been properly related to you by faith in Jesus. And worship truly for the first time. Lord, help us to look at our foundations and to ensure that we are relying not upon our own strength or the wisdom of others. But that we are building upon the finished work of Jesus, on that cross of Calvary. And help us, Lord, no matter how intimidating or difficult our circumstances, or how scanty our knowledge, how fearful we may be, to begin by faith, with faith's first step. Bless us, we pray, Lord, and your word to us, and give us a glad obedience to it, in Jesus' name. Let's sing a song of Zion now as we sing from Psalm 65. Closing Psalm 65, and we sing verses 1 to 5. So on page 82. In Zion, praise awaits you, Lord, to you our vows will pay, to you all people will come near. You hear us when we pray. Let's stand and sing.